I'm here today with Richard Dasher of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center on Stanford campus. Richard, welcome to today's show. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate being on. So, Richard, I understand you, you recently finished a trip over to uh, South Korea. Uh, and, and, you know, we're seeing in the news of the military situation in North Korea. Um, how is it affecting the economic relations in, um, in that country, South Korea, as well as the other Far East con countries? I think you have to make a real distinction between the security relationship and the economic relationship. On the security side, the South Koreans have had big, you know, war games with the U.S. recently. That was one of the things that the North Koreans were reacting against. And as soon as North Korea does a missile test, they will test some bombers or test some missiles over on the South Korea side. Japan is really becoming much more serious about rearming itself, even talking about changing their constitution. And I think that the North Korean situation is a big reason that they feel like they need to do this. But on the economic side, you're dealing with a very small country, North Korea. The total GDP of North Korea is somewhere around $40 billion. And by comparison, the annual sales of one company, Samsung, in South Korea last year was $170 billion U.S. So North Korea is very small, it's very isolated, it's very top-down. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of trade back and forth between North Korea and just about anybody else except for China. Uh, China has accounted for over three-fourths of North Korea's trade, and certainly the economic sanctions are slowing that down to the extent that China is really honoring those sanctions and that they're really being enforced. Uh, until the latest set after the... Uh, North Korean missile went off last week, uh, there was really quite a few loopholes that the Chinese were using to continue a lot of their business back and forth with the North. There's one other uh, source of income for North Korea that people don't think about much, and that's workers from North Korea who have been sent to places like China or Russia or even Kuwait and they're doing work and sending remittances back home to North Korea. That has finally been addressed in this latest set of sanctions. So uh, I think that you're seeing a very minor dip. When I was in Seoul, it was business as usual. You really couldn't tell anybody being particularly worried about an invasion from the north or an artillery barrage from the north. That hasn't happened yet. The worry hasn't really hit people yet. You know, it's interesting when, when, when you mentioned that the size and the scale of North Korea, putting it in perspective, 40 billion, which is even a third of what Samsung sales alone are doing. Uh, and, and, and so on the world stage for the economic uh, purposes, uh, you know, putting it in perspective, North Korea does not have substantial impact. That's correct. Okay. So... Um, I'm going, to, I'm going to move over to China because uh, clearly someone is supporting that, that uh, the, the, the trade there. And, um, and, and China has remained relatively silent until the last few weeks. Uh, what do you feel is influencing China to behave in a different way, if it all is true? Well, I'm really glad you asked about China 
because I think that to understand the security situation between North Korea and its neighbors, South Korea, Japan, and also the U.S., you really have to look at North Korea-China relations. And I'm guessing that if we think Kim Jong-un is sort of hard to deal with, he must really be a thorn in the side of the Chinese because they are trying to really step out onto the world stage after the U.S. got out of TPP and after the U.S. seems to be moving down a more isolationist road. The Chinese really want to pick up influence all across Asia. They have this one belt, one road policy that is kind of imitating the old Silk Road that Marco Polo went you know, across in, in the Middle Ages. And as part of this, they need a good security buffer in North Korea. So for them, they want to keep things like it is. Although there are some people who think they would love to get rid of Kim Jong-un. We don't know. That's speculation. But it's clear that they are, the Chinese, are bearing the brunt of the economic sanctions negative impact outside North Korea. It's certainly affecting things in the North, we would think, but it's Chinese companies and Chinese banks that are really having a more difficult time because of these sanctions. They're paying the price. I'm busy here today with Richard Dasher of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford Campus. Richard, I need to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to jump into China and their view on the cryptocurrency recently in the news. Okay. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Take your wealth with you. Spend time with your family. Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Richard Dasher of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford Campus. And uh, Richard, in the last segment, we, we were touching on North Korea, and I think uh, the, the conclusion is, okay, there's, there's two issues. One is a security issue, the other is an economic, and essentially economics a non-issue in terms of the impact to the U.S. economy. But uh, China, as it is bearing the brunt of this, has made an interesting move within the last two weeks of, on the area of cryptocurrency. Can you comment? Well, I think that China is quite happy to see the difficulties that are starting to emerge with the U.S. dollar as a world currency. They, for several years ago, started promoting a basket of world currencies for international transactions as opposed to purely dollar-denominated currencies. That has not happened. I think that to them, Bitcoin looked like an interesting alternative to dollars. Now, the anonymity that's usually possible with Bitcoin made me amazed that China became a place with very active Bitcoin exchanges as much as they did, and the only kind of uh, explanation, I think, is that the people who ran those exchanges knew how to keep the government happy there. Um, I think that the reaction against Bitcoin 
maybe control over markets, period. The Chinese government tries to diffuse bubbles and tries to uh, avoid bubbles bursting in a way that they can't control. And I'm guessing that so much was being put into Bitcoin that they just decided, wait, we've got to put on the brakes. So in the, in, in the world of, of, of Bitcoin, they, just, they made a declaration of, okay, it, 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 we're closing down the servers. And then Jamie Dimon, uh, the, the CEO of JP Morgan, goes out and publicly denounces the whole cryptocurrency is not real. I want to I want to uh, not move too deep into this because obviously it's uh, it's a very fluid situation. But but when we roll back into uh, you know what is what is the world currency? It, you know it's still the U.S. dollar per se. More or less, I would say that. But think about the dollar. When was the last time that you saw a silver certificate note where they would pay you the equivalent in silver for your piece of paper? Yeah. We yeah. all agree that this currency has value, and that essentially makes it pretty close to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. If people agree that it has a value and they, the markets can determine the value, then that's how it's usable. Uh, I think that the, um, yeah, there's a certain disingenuous nature to that comment uh, about uh, Bitcoin being a fraud or, or whatever, because at the end of the day, so much value is being transferred around the world. All of these uh, units of currency are basically abstract. You know, I, I'll often get... Uh, the, the question of you know wh where where the U.S. dollar is going is it real is it going to collapse and 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 then you know we look at the U.S. political scene of uh, you know you, you hear you see the barbell effect in in this you know depending on what side of the barbell you're on it's it's there's there is no longer really a middle ground so uh, what I want to do Jamie I'm running up or excuse me uh, Richard I'm running up against the break right now. Uh, but when we come back, I'd like to, I'd like to move into uh, the drivers of why the U.S. dollar is still looked at on the international exchange and how the central banking system uh, has an influence on you know, world, world currencies as a whole. We'll be right back after these messages. I love fishing you know, with my family. I think it would be easier to use a net. It was so much fun. The times when we are together, it makes it all, all the more worth it. Having Dad teach them how to like cast a fly rod and... As long as we're doing stuff together, we're having fun. Some people see a father and a son fishing together, while others see a succession plan. Welcome back. I'm visiting here today with Richard Dasher of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center, Stanford campus. And Richard, in the last segment, uh, you know, we, we rolled into China, the influence that they had in cryptocurrency. We touched on North Korea. I want to move back into uh, the the the, uh, the the world the world banking system because I think this is kind of an interesting play about you know where the U.S. dollar is heading. A lot of people are losing confidence, saying, let's go to gold, let's move to cryptocurrencies. And um, 
you know, and, and, and tying that back to China, China is not a member of the G7 nations. That's right. Uh, it, we can go to the G8, say we put Russia in there. But, uh, but China is part of, they come to the table in the G20 summits. So as, as we move through currently the, the, the trade economics and across the border, we're still seeing that the U.S. has a tremendous amount of influence there. But uh, ultimately, and, and this, is, this is tossed in the air uh, with, with the question of, you know, where the U.S. dollar is going. Do you see the likelihood of, in the, in the short term, of anybody moving away from the U.S. dollars as a basis for trading? Unless there's some sort of a real crisis or calamity, I doubt it. One reason is because China is the U.S.'s largest trading partner. And that means that that business is probably going to continue to be in dollars for quite some time. So even if China wants to increase its relative influence in world markets by encouraging some basket of currencies or moving away from the dollar, a lot of the business it's actually doing is still going to be dollar-denominated. That uh, I think you also have uh, these worldwide supply chains. You know, global trade is not bilateral trade. It's something where the raw materials come from Indonesia and the parts are made in Malaysia and the final assembly is done in Shenzhen, China, and it winds up being sold in Canada first before it comes down to the U.S. You have these worldwide global supply chains that you can hedge an awful lot of risk if you keep the same currency involved. And also, uh, it needs simplicity, it needs to be completely accessible, it needs to be completely liquid. Right now there's really no substitute for the dollar. However, I do know the people who are really telling me to buy gold. I, you know, There are a lot of people who are worried that there will be a calamity, that there will be some kind of crisis. Um, if it happens, it may be us undoing ourselves. You know, it's interesting. It's uh, for, the, for the listeners, uh, I uh, you know, I once had, in the early days of, of the, the Iron Curtain coming down, uh, a group of Russians that had, had come over, and they were actually trading for the country. And, um, and they were explaining that, you know, because the ruble was not recognized in the world currency market, they, they had to go to the Chicago Board of Exchange and, and trade Russian oil contracts for coats in Korea. And, yeah. and thereby, they, they put the U.S. dollar smack in the middle as the exchange agent. Um, we saw in January a very interesting thing happen. Uh, the biggest buyers of the U.S. Treasury bills was China and Japan. Of course, their economies are very dependent on the U.S. But they began to, to sell off positions. And ironically, Russia, who is not a big trade partner of the U.S., ended up being a buyer. Uh, now, I don't know what to make of that, but uh, but when we roll forward nine months into the to where we are now, um, you know, can you make sense of why Japan, who's so dependent on the U.S. as a trade partner, uh, would, um, would would begin to liquidate positions in the U.S. Treasury bills? 
that's a very interesting uh, kind of question, except that uh, Japan has a very high degree of its own government debt. And so maybe they were buying back their positions in order to pay off some of the domestic debt that their own government has. Uh, in terms of how Japan is trying to revitalize its economy, keeping the yen relatively low has been very important to their uh, industry becoming more competitive in international markets. So it doesn't seem logical that they would want to weaken the dollar. My guess is that they figure that there will be a buyer for the currency, and what they need is they need cash to pay off their own debts. So I want to roll into uh, Southeast Asia, Vietnam. What's going on there? Southeast Asia is, in some ways, the new engine of growth. China is going through a major structural change where its GDP growth has dropped from 10% a year to somewhere around 6% a year. Southeast Asia has stayed constant around 6 to 7% a year growth. And you've got a young labor force, you have a rising middle class, you have awareness of incredible opportunities precisely because the infrastructure has been late to develop. One-third of the people in, in Southeast Asia do not have bank accounts. So guess what? There's an amazing amount of investment in fintech that's giving people mobile access to funds and the ability to transfer funds in new ways that kind of leapfrog the system we've had. That's interesting. You know, I had on the show uh, one of the, the, the first uh, customers or clients of, of blockchain. And uh, for, for the listeners, can we roll through what is fintech? So fintech is the use of new technologies, whatever they are, for the purpose of financial business, you know, financial industries. Uh, I would say that the main kinds of areas in fintech, one has to do with access to money, one has to do with analysis of people's behavior so as to minimize risk and maximize, you know, uh, profit. <laughs> and I think that uh, you have things like blockchain that, separate from all the Bitcoin, really allow for new types of security that uh, may work in our current heavily networked world where everything's in the cloud. Blockchain works pretty nicely because it distributes the uh, access uh, codes and distributes security. And it also maximizes the traceability of a transaction so that you can tell whether something is fraudulent or not much more easily. Uh, I think that it's one technology that's easy to get overexcited about, but it's certainly one of these elements that's really moving things in a different way. The stock market's crazy. <laughs> I, you know, it, 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 nothing seems to be taking that in a downward direction, you got Hurricane Irma and you know, infrastructure of Houston and Florida wiped out. You got the U.S. Congress passing a three hundred eighty-six billion dollar, you know, budget, uh, you know, to, uh, yeah. to to fund government. Um, but nothing seems to be affecting directions on the market. I want to switch this over in terms of the context where. You know, when we look at Asia and the trade, 
it, it still tends to be a lot of manufacturing is done abroad and brought into the U.S., these trade imbalances. What, what's in it for the U.S. to continue to, uh, to, 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 to be more of an importer uh, of these goods than export? Well, if I understood the market, I probably wouldn't be here. But uh, I think that uh, certainly the market is expecting a continued increase in value, an increase in the creation of value. What I worry about is that we're so much more global, intrinsically speaking, than we're even aware that really foreign companies account for hundreds of thousands of jobs in California. And uh, without the ability to move freely in international markets, probably, you know, 80% of California GDP would be at risk. Uh, we really depend on access to other markets as well as the U.S. market. And so we cannot uh, build an economic wall. That doesn't work. I think that... Um, what worries me is that people don't see this. They see the outflow of jobs to places that are cheaper, uh, not realizing that Silicon Valley is probably as much a criminal and culprit in terms of causing job loss through technology innovation. And, you know, you have to get used to things. We, need, we do need better government policies to take care of the people. But it's really important for us to remember that when you open up an iPhone watch or an Apple watch, you're looking at 12 or 13 different countries that were involved in making that watch. And uh, that allows us to have things that make our lives better. And we really depend on that. It's not a luxury. It's an essential part of our economic structure now. Would you say that because the U.S. imports so much goods made throughout the world, that in exchange it positions itself to have a U.S. dollar-dominated world currency? I think that we've benefited from that to a degree that we don't even realize, partly because we don't know any other way. Your example about the Russian group that came through that had to go through the Chicago Commodities Exchange in order to do a trade with Korea, South Korea, is a very good example. We have been the blood that flows through the world economy with the U.S. dollar, and we need to keep that flow, and we need to make it um, positive and trustable. There's, there's a lot of work that always has to be done but uh, we're benefiting by being the world currency. I've been visiting here today with Richard Dasher of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center. Richard, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you being on today's show. Alan, thank you very much. And uh, for the listeners out there, to get a, a replay of today's show, we'll have it posted up on groco.com. Uh, Richard, thanks for being uh, with us, and thanks for joining us here on American Dreams, and join us right here next week on this station. Have a good week.